0: Welcome to Poetry Lectures, featuring talks by poets, scholars, and educators, presented by PoetryFoundation.org. In this program, we hear a conversation between Irish poets Patrick Cotter and Matthew Sweeney, in which they discuss the history and current state of Irish poetry. Matthew Sweeney was born in Lifford, Ireland in 1952. He studied German and English at the Polytechnic of North London and the University of Freiburg in Germany. His poetry, which is often fable-like and humorous, shows the influence of Irish and German language literary traditions and writers, including Franz Kafka. Patrick Cotter was born in Cork in 1963 and studied at University College Cork. For over a decade he has been the artistic director of the Munster Literature Center, where he curates literary festivals presenting some of the world's greatest contemporary poets and novelists. In addition to poetry, Cotter has written plays and fiction. This conversation took place at the Poetry Foundation in Chicago in April 2013. We'll hear Cotter and Sweeney read from their own work as well as works by other Irish poets. We begin with Matthew Sweeney describing an observation he made while compiling an anthology of contemporary Irish poetry.
1: I lived uh, abroad for uh, over 20 years in Britain and in Germany and in Romania and uh, so when I was asked to do the best of Irish poetry about three years ago. It was really a learning thing for me because there were so many contemporary Irish poets whose work I did not know at all. And I read a lot for that year and uh, had no problem coming up with uh, the 50 poems I needed. But I did make some observations, which I put in my introduction, and one of them was that I was surprised how some of the work wasn't striving for a kind of freshness like say the freshness of a Frank O'Hara freshness of a Sylvia Plath how it was quite well behaved and well written and um, quiet and how little of it was political and how little of it was um, straying across the borders of realism into the territory I call alternative realism which old poetry in Irish had in abundance like the Ancestor of mine called Sweeney, who was turned into a crow
2: for being a bad boy. So if Irish poetry has the right roots in medieval Irish poetry, so to speak, where do you think it all went wrong? I think
1: uh, Yeats was such a powerful figure that Irish poets coming after Yeats, I'm talking of poets like Porrick Fallon and Austin Clarke, they were existing under the shadow of those big wings and it was very hard for them to find a way. And then probably the most influential poet that did come out then was Patrick Kavanagh, And uh, a lot of Irish poetry might have sprung from that. And Cavanagh himself, although he didn't write like Auden, was hugely uh, a fan of W.H. Auden, so... It went over maybe to, to Britain and and uh, and a lot of the best known Irish poets who are still alive would be the Northern Irish poets, uh, Seamus Heaney, Derek Mahon, uh, Michael Longley, John Montague, And um, it's, it's no surprise that they were so highly valued in Britain because they were writing a kind of formally
2: a kind of poetry that
1: wasn't different from the British poetry.
2: Well, they probably also benefited from the fact that they had British citizenship, so to speak, even if somebody like Heaney later repudiated uh, being called British for the Penguin anthology, contemporary British poetry that was done by Andrew Motion back in the 80s. No glass
1: of ours was ever raised
2: to toast the Queen is one of of his famous lines. But yet he had no problems being included in Edward Lucy Smith's British poetry anthology published by Penguin 15 years earlier than that. OK, we we have the northern poets uh, writing mainly to a certain aesthetic uh, closer to, uh, I don't think it's going too far to say close to the movement poets in Britain.
1: It definitely, the general tone of the poetry there was descended from the
2: movement, from the, the movement type of poetry. And then among poets... In the Republic, I mean, you yourself are from Ulster. I mean, uh, the, the, uh, you know, if the line on the map was moved a few miles, you yourself would also be a Northern Irish poet. But, I mean, it seems to me the poets of Munster are people like Michael Hartnett, Eleni Quillenon, Nualini Gonal, Patrick Galvin. They're all poets who exhibit uh, an influence far more continental, mainland Europe, rather than an aesthetic that's m- mediated through British poetry. I,
1: I completely agree with that and, and and speaking about my own work I would say very definitely it has the stamp of the German literature I studied at college. And and German literature, uh, people like Georg Trakel, Franz Kafka, they move very easily across the borders of realism. And uh, and, and, and in a way I connected with Old Irish poetry in the Irish language via the german poets i i i I studied it 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 all made a sense to me and it and and it seemed increasingly to me, although i wouldn 't rule out staying completely within the borders of realism for a, for a poem, and many of them do stay there, but to just limit yourself permanently to staying within the borders of r- realism from all the poetry, the German writing I read would seem to me a a seriously limiting thing. And also just to remain in autobiography, like like I would argue a lot of American poets do, would seem to me a nonsense. I I, I, I have no interest in writing autobiographically at all.
2: But yet, I mean, Sylvia Plass is one of the poets you admire most and arguably her work is autobiographical but
1: oh, I, I think that's a completely reductive view of Sylvia Plath I don't I don't the, 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 the Sylvia Plath poems that I respond very very strongly to are not autobiographical
2: The German thing is interesting though as distinct from French and Italian poets being the main influence uh, the main foreign influence on poetry in English um, I'm thinking for instance of Michael Hartnett um, There's another dichotomy situation going on in Ireland, of course. And that's it's not just the tension between Europe or Britain as an influence, but the tensions that exist for poets, I think born into the Republic are born into the, that time of history when the Republic existed. Um, like for, for example, Patrick Cavanagh was born before the Republic existed. Yeats is born before the Republic existed. Mo- uh, both Montague, born in Brooklyn, uh, Michael Hartnett born in Limerick James Heaney born in Northern Ireland they they were all born into a period that existed after the Republic and, and there's, there's this tension between English language origins as well as uh, Irish language origins and a poet like Hartnett um, I mean he went through a very interesting personal history abandoning English at one stage quoting uh, an, uh, an Irish language poet from a, an earlier age saying that English was the perfect language to sell pigs in. Um, and did, the first part in the poem I read was uh, as a teenager was Pig Killing and I thought it had huge uh, sympathetic going with the early poems of Gottfried Ben. I'll just read it there. Pig Killing. Like a knife cutting a knife His last plea for life echoes joyfully in camas. An egg floats like a navel in the pickling barrel. Before he sinks, his smiling head sees a delicate girl up to her elbows in a tub of blood, while the avalanche of his offal steams among the snapping dogs, and mud and pork steaks coil in basins like bright snakes, and buckets of boiling water hiss to soften his bristles for the blade. I kick his golden bladder in the air, it lands like a moon among the damsons. Like a knife cutting a knife, his last plea for life echoes joyfully in Camus. Now, that arguably is a, a realistic poem, if not a, a socio-realistic poem. That, that's not the kind of realistic poem you'd object to, though, I imagine.
1: No, because the um, similes, like Plath, the similes and the metaphors take it, take it into the strange places.
2: Yeah, he, I mean, he did go go a lot of strange places and one of the interesting aspects of his abandonment of English and writing in Irish, I mean he was fluent in Irish, he had an extensive vocabulary but it was a second language for him and he was viewed very suspiciously and ambivalently by the native Irish language poets um, before having to re-emerge again in English uh, many years later.
1: Well, I I thought it was a slightly um, forced stance he took by doing that, a political stance rather than one that he... he, because he came back to writing in English later on. And also, I would argue that typical Hartnett poem in English, like Death of an Irish Woman, it's often said about all Irish poetry that the ghost of the Irish language is floating onto the English. And with those Hartnett poems, uh, like the one I mentioned, there is... it feels like an Irish poem that's escaped into English.
2: Yes, well, when you were talking earlier about a lot of the poems you read for the anthology, lacking of freshness. I mean, what
1: I mean by freshness yeah. is what Robert Frost said. Mm. A, a, a poem, uh, it's a good idea if you surprise yourself in your writing. If you surprise yourself, you might surprise your reader. And I, I mentioned Frank O'Hara. There's a lovely, surprising freshness about him. The whole world can get in there and, 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 and not in a heavy way.
2: Well, there's a, a book that's making waves a lot lately, uh, "The Master uh, and His Emissary" by Ian Gilchrist, and he it's 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 a book which um, applies uh, new knowledge, new science of um, the brain to the creative process, and he talks you know he talks about how the right side of the brain needs to be experiencing new things all the time, and I know you think about Ezra Pound's saying that you know. Poem is news that always stays news. But I think what what, what what reading a poem is, is a poem is a new experience that always appears like a new experience. And no matter how many times I I go back to that Hartnett poem, it, it always comes, comes to me as a fresh experience. It's, it, it's an experience in itself, the poem. One of Robert
1: Frost's definitions of poetry is a fresh look
2: and a fresh listen. I think the poems that lack freshness are poems which... They're all conscious mind. There are. there. there there's no subconscious, there's no um, imagination from the right hand, hand side of the brain. A lot of them are what I would call essays in verse, where you have, you know, lists of facts and encyclopedic entries, uh, you know, regurgitated in, in stanzas in verse. And they seem to appeal to a particular kind of academic mind. They do. And uh, I, I firmly believe that poetry
1: has to be first pushed out by the unconscious mind and then the conscious mind has the job of going and tidying tidying That's it good. over. And and the 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 clearest demonstration of that is the few times when I've lost a poem and tried to recreate it, which is all the conscious mind, and either couldn't get it right or if I found the first draft and I compared it with the draft come up with the conscious mind, the second one was a clodhopper because the unconscious mind was switched off.
2: Mm. Not only are you renowned as a marvellous poet, Matthew, but you've also got a reputation for being a brilliant teacher of poetry, um, how to read it and how to write it this the the poetry scene in ireland is fairly feral compared to the situation here in america where it seems to be almost impossible to get get on in the poetry world here without having put yourself through the mfa process um, i mean do you think do you, do you see advantages and disadvantages to to both situations america's a huge country
1: and um there are some wonderful poets writing here today like if you take the best of American poetry as I did a few years ago and compare it with the best of British poetry. The American one has more variety and, and it was just stronger writing. It was it was exciting. So there is that benefit from so many, like a football team put together from a big country like Spain is going to be a more chance of being a really good football team than, 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 than a small country like Ireland. Um, but at the same time, Ireland, I remember being at an event in Berlin uh, organised by the Irish ambassador and he said this, he, he said it in three languages in Irish and German and English, he said Ireland is a small country but when it comes to poetry we play in a much bigger league. So there, there, there is that as well and, and, and partly the smallness of Ireland is a help to be cheeky, to try and do something Something a bit different,
2: but do you think do you think that um, that world class team, so to speak, fielded by Ireland, is that sustainable? Is that something that's going to that can carry on from generation to generation, or, or will it disappear with the you know with the people who are in their sixties and seventies now?
1: No, I hope I hope it will, as always, keep going on, and I I hope the, that. A new poet will get published in the next five years. He's doing something really different and, and
2: stuff that I can't see how it's done. Am I right in thinking that the Irish poet you most identify with is Elaine Cullenon?
1: Well, she's the Irish poet who whose work has continually interested me most.
2: I, I, I
1: really like what she does. Her poetry has a mystery about it, but within the mystery is absolutely concrete whereas there are other poets writing who have a mystery that's mysterious in the inside and concrete in the outside. I think poetry has to, like, like the German-Austrian the poet I mentioned, Trakkel, is very, very, very clear within, but mysterious. Here's a Nelia Neukilnan poem. She's also got a, a, often an, an apparent simplicity, but it's not, it's not simple at all. This is called The Crossroads. I have been at the crossroads now, all the time without leaving, since the afternoon of Shrove Tuesday. They brought me the blessed ashes, wrapped in tissue paper. When I woke on Palm Sunday, the palm branches had been left on the damp stones of the stile. I heard them at Easter across the ploughed fields, and the little girls came and stood a little way off to show me their embroidered dancing costumes. Now it is a long time to the feast of the Assumption when my mother will come to collect me in her pony and trap and we will go calling on all our cousins and take tea and sherry in their parlours. Of course, there's a lot of the ritual of Catholicism in that
2: poem. Well, she has very much, um, you know, a list of recurring motifs, you know, the nuns, the the, the architecture and so on, sometimes all in the one poem. Um, a lot of Irish poets hope or aspire for critical attention from a section of America. I mean, if I think of Dennis O'Driscoll, a lot of the critical attention he received too late in life, I think, came from America, but it didn't come from the usual sources in America that Irish poets aspire to receive attention from. I'm, for instance, thinking about the, the basically the Irish studies departments scattered in various universities across, across America. I mean, do you, do you think Irish poets writing are allowing a desire for critical attention from those places to influence their work?
1: I wouldn't know anything about that because I've always looked at Germany and... Yeah. Uh, and, and uh, <laughs> The best experience I've had in poetry was publishing a book in Germany and seeing the interests over there. I, I've always looked uh, east rather than
2: west. And you haven't made any observations about other people's work uh, in, in those regards?
1: Um, I can see the Irish poets who do well in America. I can see them. Let me read one of my poems to show the Germanness of it. This is a poem from my new collection, Horse Music. The Blue Hammock. Behind the tool shed, among the nettles and rusting horseshoes, I buried the key. The white dog watched me, whimpering, as if he disapproved of what I was doing. But when I unearthed a bone and threw it, he bounded away, barking, into the field. I replaced the spade in the shed, strode off to the blue hammock, and climbed into it. Swaying from side to side, I began to hum the tune from the first spaghetti western where Clint raises his poncho and shoots, then lights up another cigarillo. Above me, the silver birch with my initials stretched upward to its far-off father, the moon. They would never, ever find that key, and in the morning I would head for Lisbon, where I'd rent a room in hilly Alfama, then translate the entire work of Brecht. The seagulls are huge there and musical. The crows spend most time on the ground. Would you like to explain to us why you think that that's that's a German poem? Well, the whole world in the poem is very strange, and and and, and Kafka is a, a huge influence on in, on the way I write. And um, but there's all kinds of little, and the 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 poem has questions and doesn't give any answers. Like a realist poem would would be more to do that. But also, um, the poem, the narrator of the poem is the German speaker. He's translating the entire work of Brecht. Uh, the moon is, is masculine. The only language I know where the moon is masculine is, is German. So there's all kinds of little German clues in it.
2: Okay. Um, but you don't think that um, this tendency away from sociorealism is something that you'd also find in the work of Mirschlaf Halle, but speaking of Herbert? Or
1: yes, you would or um, uh, Ristovic, the, yes. the Serbian poet. Alexander uh, uh, Ristovic, that yeah.
2: Simic translated, yeah.
1: Yeah, and, 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 and a l- one reason why Charles Simic's poems feel so strange, I heard one American poet I will not name dismiss Simic as that, that European surrealist because Simic has the germ of that European slantwise way of writing coming from left, field uh, the ultimate illustration of what emily dickinson's meant by tell the truth but tell it slant and and he writes in english but underneath it is the, is the is the serbian poetry that he grew up with
2: what do you make of this I mean, we all know the tensions that exist between so-called mainstream poetry and and, and so-called uh, neo-modernist poetry but there's also the tension between poetry which is simple easy to understand on a first reading and poetry, which aims for a certain type of complexity without, without being necessarily generically.
1: Yeah, let, let me let me answer your first question you asked. The, the it is a real hostility between avant garde po- poets and, and, and the mainstream. But where is it the hostility? It's a hostility in England and in Ireland, but not in Germany. I lived in Germany for five years. I got completely into the German poetry scene there. My translator, the fine poet Jan Wagner, his best friend is one of the most avant-garde of German poets, and Jan is anything but avant-garde. And they 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 play pool and drink beer together every Wednesday night. That, I couldn't see that happening in Ireland. I just could not.
2: Hey, Pat, let's hear
1: let's hear some of your work.
2: Okay. Well, well, you, you talked about your relationship with uh German poets I, I i too would have had a relationship with German poets uh, more Paul Celan and Gottfried Ben perhaps than Trakl um I think I preferred the earlier younger Celan who had uh emotionally open conventional surrealism poems rather than the later Celan who became more reductive in language but that kind of interest led me on to uh the uh the Surrealists in Eastern Europe. And what I liked about their work is, the, the, again, the slanted truth, uh, a technique they had to develop maybe to escape the censorship of uh, Soviet uh, oppressive days. But uh, it's a technique which I I believe still has um, validity after the Cold War.
1: Well, the anthology that Joe Shapkut and I edited for Faber uh, called uh, Emergency Kit, uh, in her introduction, we talk about how all of the poetry or most of the poetry in that, uh, it was all poetry in English, a lot of Americans, a lot of Brits, Irish, Australians, Indians. How, how A lot of them had adopted that tactic that, that, as you say, was very useful for outwitting the censor. But, but it, it's also very central to poetry, as Emily, Emily Dickinson's quote makes clear.
2: Well, I'm going to read a poem called From 1001 Estonian Nights. As I travelled along the forest-insulated road to Rapla, one evening, not too late, 1983, while summer simmered to its end with shortening days, and the sky was full of geese disappearing in shaftless arrows, my attention lapsed on the almost empty road, built flat and wide for armoured columns to lumber over. My little trabant, blue and farting, nearly collided with a green man and his stricken silver craft. I alighted to apologise, but he merely aimed a gnarly, twiggy finger at the barely arriving stars, pressing their way through dusk's veil, and asked for directions in an Estonian so impeccable, vowel lengths so exact, his use of the abessive case so apt, no Western agent could have mastered in a son's lifetime. No American with oxidised copper face paint, No Brit with a beauty mask of dried green tea. No misplaced Irish reveller on the 18th of March. As the moments passed and my ignorance of Orion in relation to Cassiopeia became apparent, I noticed his webbed feet and his utterances change to honks of pain for his grounded state. I've seen enough of men dying to know death is a taste that first visits them on their tongue his mouth frotted with the unimaginable heaviness of a dark, dark hole, which suddenly sucked the whole of his being and machine as through a simple tear in fabric, immediately afterward self-mended invisibly. I was left with just a breeze for company and the whiff of stale lynx piss piddled by a queen in heat rising from juniper bark at the forest's edge. I don't remember how I got behind the wheel again, pressing on the accelerator until the twin spires of Mary Magdalene's church loomed into view like the antennae of a gothic spaceship. That is Deep in the Weird Zone. Do you want to uh, read one of your own poems from Deep in the Weird Zone?
1: Um, this one is a boring uh, historical tract. A history of glass blowing. The records show that in Shanghai, at the end of the Yuan dynasty, the year 1364, a glassblower blew a mermaid that came to life and swam away. And in Cologne in 1531, a team of glassblowers blew an orchestra, instruments and all, and these played. Then in Hokkaido in 1846, a blind monk blew his own Buddha to pray to and the next day he was able to see. In Natchez in 1901, a glassblower blew a paddle boat with gamblers in it, one of them lying dead. And in Oaxaca in 1929, a small version of the Sierra Madre was blown with gold diggers on its lower slopes and the whole town filled with gold. In Letterkenny in 1965, a woman blew a flock of glass sheep, wool and all, each of them with a tinkly bar In 1993, in set, the harbour glassblower blew a lighthouse with its own light. And in 2004, in Timishwara, three glasses blew a new solar system that they let float up
2: and away. St Catherine of Siena's ecstatic vision of her wedding at Graball Bay near Crosshaven, County Cork. In Graball Bay that day the mist intruded from the sea, briny, opaking the air. A smoothened shard of glass, worn by the rubbings of sand, the tramplings of crustaceans, the swirling embraces of the waves, glinted like an eye until like a swallow through a cloud it vanished unexpectedly mid-tiding with a troop of winged trombonists hovering patiently by his side. Gabriel's feathers fluttered and susurrated like leaves. I found myself slightly uneased. For my matrimonial march the mist parted like a crowd. The angel trombonists heralded my steps. The horns of Roche's Point and the Innish Fallon boomed heartily out, while gulls and guillemots shrieked wildly in celebration. Not for an iota of eternity did I doubt my lover would come, wounds brandished for all to see. When he did arrive, I sang my song. My lord bridegroom's blood is honey to my kisses, from his shredded heart is fashioned my bouquet. His suffering expression makes me seep with pleasure, his kindness forgiveness enrich my soul's reflay. King Solomon himself composed the prayers we would say, Your love is more beautiful than wine, Your name is an oil poured out, Draw me in your footsteps, let us run. I myself was so beautiful and resplendent, Some local girls mistook me for the Blessed Mary. A little boy ran round and round a rock In some mocking dance, Until, tripping, he split his head upon the stone, Letting his blood gush out. To seal my matrimony delicately, My lord bridegroom fitted around my waiting finger a holy band of covenant, not a band of tarnished silver or tainted gold, but a malleable band of his holy flesh sliced since infancy. The local peasantry was much impressed. A place of pilgrimage was what they made this place, a beach where little boys peed in the sea, where the Blessed Virgin was remembered to have worn the holy prepuce. Saint Catherine of Siena, Saint Catherine of Grabois, Saint Catherine of Siena, Saint Catherine of Crosshaven. Siena is more euphonious than Crosshaven, but Crosshaven is more sacred than Siena. We talked about how you you have a lot of German influences in your work. I'd like you to read a poem now that um, shows your Irish influences or displays how you are an echt Irish poet.
1: This is the title poem of Horse Music. Hearing of horses speaking Irish on the island. He took a boat out there, paid an islander daft money to lead him to the westernmost field, where a shy pair of russet ponies stood head to head on a hilly mound that jutted out over the leaping froth of the Atlantic. He pretended not to notice them, said goodbye to his guide, an Irish picked up from books in southern Spain, his lifetime's hobby, then sat on his hunkers, listening hard. But either the horses were quiet, or he needed to get closer. He waited until a gang of squeaking gulls got the horses neighing. Then over he went, soothing them with murmurs, stroking them, until one said in fluent Irish to the other, This hairy fellow could be okay but we can't trust him, can't trust any of them. Two legs? I mean, imagine yourself like that. The other whinnied and hoofed the ground, then began to sing a song, a wrenching lament for a red-haired woman that intensified when the second horse joined in, so the man slipped away, head down, back to the harbour.
0: That was Matthew Sweeney reading his poem Horse Music and speaking with Patrick Cotter. This program was recorded at the Poetry Foundation in Chicago on April 11th, 2013, as part of International Poets in Conversation and was sponsored by the Harriet Monroe Poetry Institute series Poets in the World. Matthew Sweeney is the author of 12 collections of poetry, most recently Black Moon and Night Post, a new selection. In addition to several chapbooks, Patrick Cotter is the author of two poetry collections, Perplexed Skin and Making Music. He also writes the blog Anti-Laureate. Keep up with the world of poetry by visiting poetryfoundation.org, where you'll find articles by and about poets, an online archive of more than 10,000 poems, the Harriet blog about poetry, the complete back issues of Poetry Magazine, and other audio programs to download. I'm Ed Herman. Thanks for listening to Poetry Lectures from poetryfoundation.org.